And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, as we continue our study of Luke's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17 is our passage today. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. And would you please pray with me before we look at the text? Uh, Father, we thank you for being so kind to us, so gracious and loving, uh, so patient and powerful. And as we come to your word, we ask that you would teach us more and more about who you are and more and more about what kind of people we ought to be in light of who you are. I'm sure that there are many of us who are going through a variety of, of, of issues. Uh, would you please lead us to a rock that is higher than we are? Would you build your church? Would you reveal yourself to those who do not know you this morning? Uh, we ask this for your namesake. In Jesus we pray, amen. Luke's expressed purpose in writing his book is to give believers certainty and assurance, a, a confidence in the things that we believe. We can't bank our lives on something that we are unsure of, and so we need that certainty. And the way that Luke gives that to us is by writing an orderly, historical, evidence-backed narrative of the events surrounding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He points us to the Savior and what God has accomplished in and through him. And Lucas studied hard to ensure that what the very first church believed, the original eyewitnesses, the ministers of the word, that what they taught and what they believed is laid out in the text before us. That was Luke's first four verses of the book, the preface really. And it is now in these verses that we come to the actual narrative, not beginning with the birth of Jesus Christ, but by beginning with the announcement of another birth, the birth of John the Baptist. Luke goes back further than Jesus' birth to the birth of his cousin and his forerunner. And we read in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. In the opening verses of Luke's narrative, we are taken to this quiet home in the hill country, to an elderly couple who love the Lord and are faithful to him, even though they haven't gotten the things that they wanted in this life. Even though their personal desires and their expectations have not been met, Zechariah and Elizabeth still live righteously unto their God. But it hasn't been easy. From the very opening phrase, in the days of Herod. Herod is the king of Judea. Herod the Great, he is often called. He's not an Israelite. He is not a God-fearing man. But he was placed in power by Rome because Rome had conquered the Israelites. They were ruling over them. And Herod is a bad, bad man. He's a brutal tyrant. He will famously have all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two and under, murdered because one of them is supposed to threaten his throne. Just like that, two and under, kill them all. This tells you what kind of man that he is, that I will kill babies to keep my lifestyle. That's a mentality that's becoming more and more prevalent today, to kill babies to keep the lifestyle. 
but it also tells us about the range of authority that is under his control. So Israel is under this foreign domination. They are under foreign occupation. This isn't a peaceful time in Israel. They are a defeated people. This is not what an Israelite desires. This is part of the reason why they long so much for the Messiah to come. Someone needs to come and rescue us. This is a historical, political landscape that Luke is giving to us in these verses. In addition to this, the spiritual climate isn't all that great either. The space of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years. That single page in your Bibles separating the two Testaments is called the 400 years of silence, which means that the last time God had sent a prophet to speak forth his word to the people was four centuries ago. That'd be like the 1600s. God had turned away from speaking to his people because his people had really turned away from him. And religion in the first century had become this empty shell of what it was supposed to be. It was more formalism and hollow confession than it was true religion. We'll see that more and more in the study of Luke, where the religious leadership of the nation, the people responsible for leading people in the ways of the Lord, they are the ones who put the Son of God on the cross. This is spiritual bankruptcy. And this has been the spiritual climate, which contests the faith of those who are truly is. What about your plan, God? It doesn't look like it's going to happen. What about all the promises you made? It's not looking too hot. Every day we wake up and we witness a a lack of true zeal. It seems like it's been such an utter disappointment for generations now. And so nationally, Israel's dominated by foreign powers. Spiritually, it's They felt the Lord's distance from them. This is not what you have hoped for, but Luke shows us even more that personally, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they they did not get to have the family they so desired. They had no child, verse 7 tells us, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's as if each phrase makes their situation more and more bleak. No child, barren, advanced in years. The absence of children in this day and age was seen as a reproach and as a shame. And in addition to that pain of wanting a child and not getting one, what people would assume is that this couple, well, they must have some, have, have some hideous sin harbored up in their hearts. This has to be some kind of act of judgment from God. It must be their own fault. And this is misery upon misery and the stigma being attached to them. So this lack of a family that the first century Jewish people desire and and the whispers of gossip as to the reason why Zach and Liz can't have a baby piled up this suffering. And the advancement of years shows that the hope of their situation changing had dwindled and dwindled with each passing birthday as their friends not only had children, but now their friends' children are now having children. Zechariah and Elizabeth did not receive the life that they desired from their God. Nationally, their people dominated spiritually hollow religion. Personally, we're not getting a family that we so hope for. But the text is very clear that even though all these things are true, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before their God. Their present state of affairs did not sour their love for their Lord. This devotion is true worship, that they honor God for who he is rather than for what he can give to them. They both come from this priestly bloodline, Aaron and Abijah, but more than that, they live out what they believe. Verse 6, they walk blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of God. This doesn't mean sinlessness in this context, but it means a real godliness. 
that no one could ever bring a concrete charge against them. This is proof of a genuine reverence for the Lord. The life of this couple who made obedience to him a very high priority. This is a spiritually exemplary family of physical lineage and religious devotion. Now, there are couples who will not have children in this life who really want them. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why God allows that to happen. I really don't. But this text proves that that it's not your fault necessarily. This text doesn't blame Zechariah and Elizabeth for their lot in life. Not everyone is going to be given a family by God in the timing that they want. Jesus didn't have a family. Paul didn't have children. Neither even got married. Godly people will not always have families. It's not your fault. And the chronic testing of your faith when you don't get what it is that you want and the trying of your devotion to the Lord when things feel bleak, it, it makes your continuing belief in him stand out all the more starkly. Now, there's something beautiful about this old couple and their years and decades of faithfulness that being stripped of so many reasons why other people worship the Lord, they still worship him wholeheartedly. They worship God for God. They love God for who he is, not just what he can deliver. And that's really an example for us. There will be times in our own lives where we must continue in our devotion and worship our God even through our disappointments. One commentator I read, he keenly writes this. He says, our disappointments will either make us bitter or make us better. In Elizabeth's and Zachariah's case, the striking thing is that they handled a lifelong disappointment and social shame with righteousness and blamelessness before God. They served God even though they did not have what they wanted. Being righteous and blameless does not mean a challenge-free life, exemption from heartaches, or that every desire will be granted. If you serve God for what you can get, then you actually serve yourself. That, beloved, is a prosperity gospel, not the biblical gospel. The righteous person is not free from suffering because he serves the Lord. We do not get everything we want just because we live well. We may live well past the years of possibility without receiving our hope, but if we are God's people, we will live righteously anyway because God is our hope. Their examples provoke us to ask, will we serve faithfully through our disappointments? Say, God doesn't give you the spouse you always dreamed of, the family you always wanted. You're not moving up the ranks of your job like you thought you would. You put an offer on the house and you got outbid. Your body isn't as healthy as you hoped it to be. Is God going to mean more to us in all these things even though we receive none of them? I mean, these are piercing questions, brothers and sisters. They divide true religion from self-service. And so we have this purity of devotion in these verses. And this is how Luke begins the narrative of the Son of God, the Messiah, in a quiet home in the hill country to a couple who has been suffering greatly for decades and yet who will still not abandon their love for their God. And yet we have these hints already that this isn't the whole story. Zechariah's name means Yahweh has remembered again. God remembers. Elizabeth's name means, my God is an oath. Yeah, this, this couple would talk to each other. Zechariah, Elizabeth, is as if they're proclaiming to each other, reminding each other of God's very own faithfulness. We continue in verse 8. 
Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. It is after 400 years of silence and in the midst of political domination, spiritual decline, and in the last lap of a life marked by personal disappointment, that God promises a child to the faithful but barren. He pronounces that there will be life where there has been no life. There will be light where there has seems to have only been darkness. God sends an angel, a messenger with a message that the forerunner of the Christ would be a child given to this old godly couple. This is a pronouncement that only God can make. This is a promise that only God can deliver on. This is the first of a pair of miraculous births in Luke's gospel. Now, I think it's interesting to note that throughout the Old Testament narrative, several key people have been born under similar circumstances. Isaac, the child of promise, wasn't given to Sarah until she was in her 90s. That's a miracle when all hope seems to have been lost. A baby was given, and the announcement was made a year prior. Samson was promised and then born to a barren Manoah in Judges 13. And while he had his character issues, it would be through Samson that God would bring a form of deliverance to the Israelites from the Philistines who dominated them. Samuel, we studied Samuel a little while ago, if you remember. And Samuel was given to Hannah after years of pain. She prayed so hard, words wouldn't come out of her mouth. And oh, how God would work through Samuel as Hannah dedicated Samuel to the service of the Lord. God often reverses circumstances like this drastically. And historically, it has frequently been the case that when things seem to be at their darkest, God causes light to shine through. Now, this is important for us to note because we are living in some trying times. If I listen to this political commentary or that commentary or this theologian here or this person there or this person interpreting the signs and yada, 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 well, then you can lose your grip on life pretty quickly. And you can let hope slip through your fingers pretty easily. And you can lose sight of the God who works when things are bleak and who often decides to show forth his might when things seem to be at their worst. Brothers and sisters, God is in control. And we say that and we confess that, but we actually have to really believe it, that God is sovereign and everything occurs down to the detail according to his perfect plan and his decree. We see this truth in this verses. There, there were 24 divisions, 24 groupings of priests structured after 1 Chronicles 23 and 24. 24 groupings. Each of these divisions served in the temple for one week, two times a year, and they would show up at the major festivals. So you got two weeks a year, 24, two weeks a year. Some estimates number the amount of priests available at tens of thousands. And so tens of thousands of priests. This is why they selected priests by lot. There were too many priests for the amount of work. And so they would select these priests by lot to serve in this capacity for a regular priest like Zechariah. He's not a high priest. The lot might fall to his name once in his entire lifetime. 
I mean, this is the climactic moment of his entire priestly career. And it's not by accident that it didn't fall upon him in his 30s or his 40s or a few years after this. But when the fullness of time came and that when the Lord saw fit for the historical political climate to reach a certain point and the spiritual climate of the nation of Israel to look like this and to preserve Zechariah and Elizabeth through years of disappointment to keep them faithful, God causes a lot to fall on Zechariah's name at this opportune time. Even the detail of how the lot fell, he's in control of that during the mundane daily offerings under the guidance of one of thousands of priests at the very temple, which represents God's own presence with the faithful people praying outside, it is then that God breaks into human history to make a declaration that Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And this is a miracle child. And this precision in timing, in lot casting, in couple choosing, God is about to accomplish something amazing. He decides that this is a time that he's going to fulfill his word and bring his promises to fruition. God is absolutely sovereign. He is totally in control down to the very smallest detail. And God does this in answer to prayer. Your prayer has been heard, the angel says in verse 13. The answer to prayer is linked to the birth of this child. Now, this prayer might be Zechariah's lifelong prayer for child. It might be his lifelong prayer for political redemption. It might be his lifelong prayer for the spiritual awakening of his people. But the birth of John the Baptist would really be the answer to all of these things. It's as if every one of his requests laid at the throne of God are, are blended together. John's name means to show favor, and this is God showing favor to Zechariah and Elizabeth and the people, even though it came years and years and years after that prayer was first muttered. I think this is important for us to know as well, brothers and sisters, because what we do is we often pray really, really hard for just a short little bit of time. And when we don't get the answer that we wish for, we begin to lose hope. And then we stop praying because we don't think it works. We see in this text, for one thing, prayers are not rejected because the answer is long delayed. I'm sure that as the years went on, praying for a child became less and less frequent until it became the settled reality that this is never going to happen. But these verses show to us clearly that God works in response to prayer that even occurred years prior. We have to be careful in our conclusions that prayer is ineffective after so little time. We shouldn't be so hasty. We have to keep praying, and especially when we pray for the salvation of those we know and we love who seem to never want to ever turn to God. Sometimes we pray real intensely for this amount of time, and when the scene doesn't look that favorable, we just stop praying. I got people in my family I've been praying for decades now. I can't quit. You can't quit. J.C. Ryle, it is not for us to prescribe either the time or the manner in which our requests are to be answered. He, he, who knows the best, he who knows best the time for people to be born knows also the time for them to be born again. Let us rather continue in prayer. Watch unto prayer. Pray always and not faint. You know, I really believe, I am convinced that there will be some prayer of ours that will be answered even after we've passed away. 
And there's going to be blessing to come that will be a result of our askings for a generation beyond us. And so we need to sow them seeds. We need to be a people devoted to prayer. Our Lord, he hears, he does not forget. He listens, even when it seems like he's not listening. And so this text is actually a call for us to be a people of prayer. Now, before we move on, I do want to point one more thing out. That Zechariah and Elizabeth, they didn't earn this answer because of their own righteousness. It isn't, God, I scratch your back by being good, so scratch my back by giving me a baby. As much as Zechariah loved the Lord and Revere's name, as proved in his life of obedience, when the angelic being appears, he's completely undone. And the language of his fear is not just, oh, I didn't see you there, you scared me, fear. No, the language is, is of real terror of this deep anxiety that falls upon him. And that's quite a common response, really, when divinity meets humanity. Isaiah 6, a famous passage, right when the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord, he cries out. This is his response when divinity meets humanity. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is a prophet, which means his lips are literally the best and holiest part of him. And yet, when coming face to face with the Lord, even these are unclean. I'm lost. Peter in Luke chapter 5, when he witnesses a miraculous catch of fish at the command of Jesus, the text says there, he fell down at Jesus' knees. This is a big, burly fisherman fainting at the knees of another man. And what does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You're fishing. Why are you talking about sin? Why is this the case? Because when humanity comes into the presence of the divine, we are made to feel God's greatness and our own utter inadequacy. We're meant to feel his holiness and our weakness, his perfection, and therefore our sin and our guilt before him. You can study the Bible up and down and realize that this is frequently the case. And here we have a righteous man feeling the same fear, and he's not even in the presence of God, but in the presence of his mere messenger. And I say this for our own understanding, especially here on, on our island. There, there are so many people who claim that they encounter God, or they're hearing direct revelation from him, or I see God and I talk to him, and, and they speak of angelic beings and events and angelic tongues, and there's frankly none of this effect that we see in this passage. I rarely see from these people who make such claims any trembling in his presence, any brokenness in their own sinfulness and inability. It is all my vision for the future and what God gave to me. That's not what happens. And even in their pulpits, this, this lightness, this levity, it's, it's all so utterly casual, like they're welcoming you into their living room rather than an encounter with God through his very word. This is not the response we see in these verses and we have to be asking ourselves if our experience as Christians and as believers is inclusive of this real awareness of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that we tremble. And yet we're comforted that the very message God gives to us is do not fear so that this grace that brings us together is magnified. There's a, there's a comfort that Zechariah feels here, and yet there's a reverence that is still maintained, which is appropriate for our worship. And now even more so, I want to make one more 
clarification. Angels in the New Testament, they announce the coming of Jesus. They proclaim his birth. They rejoice at his appearing. They marvel that God will redeem humanity. They throw a party, Luke 15, with the Father when one sinner repents of sin, which shows that the angels take a deep interest in the work of Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers to sinners like me and you. That's the main thing, brothers and sisters. The main thing is the main thing, that the Son of God would come to earth. The angels are enamored with that, watching him live this sinless and holy life that none of us had ever lived. Why? So that he can go to the cross and die the death that we each deserve. And they know God himself, the Son of God, is dying for them in their place. The wrath of God, which is due to them, he takes it upon himself. And then he dies. And the angels watch more, and they see he doesn't stay dead. No, he rises from death to life to defeat the power of both sin and death to offer people new life, life eternal, that we might know God, the God we turned our backs on, that we might know him and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. If anyone tries to veer you off of that message because of some angelic revelation, please do not believe it. The angels marvel at this revelation. It's the primacy of their ministry and ours as well. And so an angel here pronounces that a child is to be born to the barren, that life will come to the lifeless and that there will be this forerunner of the Messiah. We continue in verse 15, and we'll close with this section. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And you must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We have in these verses a description of John the Baptist's greatness before the eyes of the Lord. The child would literally be great, megas great, before God. Now, there are many false estimations of human greatness. There's just one true estimation of it. There's a worldly definition of what is great and a, and a godly description of it. You know, I talked to old friends that I haven't seen in years, and if they're doing well financially, maybe buying a second or even a third home, I may say, oh, they must be doing great. Or someone who has lost some weight and has been hitting that gym, and the before and after pictures are a stark contrast. They're looking younger. That person must be doing great. Or their kids, high SAT scores, tons of extracurriculars. They're doing great. I'm sure they're going to go to a great college. Or maybe their kids are athletes instead, recognized in the newspaper, winning tournaments for this or that. They are doing great. There is an estimation of greatness which makes all of these statements factual as lived out before the eyes of the watching crowd. But none of these are what makes John the Baptist great in the eyes of the Lord. We have here first a description of John's consecration. That from the very beginning, from the womb, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And from day one, he wouldn't drink wine or strong drink. This doesn't mean drinking wine is a sin. The Bible is not anti-alcohol in the Baptist, culturally Baptist sense. 
There's nothing inherently evil with having a drink, but this is a description of a life of discipline and a voluntary restriction and single-mindedness. This is a consecration that's a call above the normal person. And we also have in, the, in John this ministry of the proclamation of repentance. He is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Why does he have to turn them? Because Israel's back's been turned to God. And Luke's referencing Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Those are the last verses of the Old Testament. This is what was a cliffhanger. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the last word of the Old Testament. And the prophecy is now being fulfilled. And a child who will be born with the strength and spirit of Elijah, bold and fearless, awakening people to a sensitivity to their own sinfulness. I mean, you see fathers and children being reconciled. How many, how many boys do you know, men do you know? When was the last time you talked to your dad? Oh, it's been years. That old man, he never approved of what I, what I was doing in my life. Talk to their dads. When was the last time you had a good talk with your son? Ah, that boy never listens to anything I say. These are some of the hardest relational difficulties, and they're being reconciled together. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit in reconciling people to God and therefore to each other. John's going to do this. He's going to call out sin. He's going to speak with the spirit and strength of Elijah, bold and fearless. Elijah once took on 400 prophets of Baal at one time, 400 against one. Let's do it. I trust in God that much. And John would have the same zeal, even if the entire world is against me. I'm going to proclaim the message of God, even to the face of kings who could throw me in jail. There is this utter unashamedness of his preaching. And the result of such preaching is that people respond to their God. And John the Baptist, therefore, is going to be very instrumental in the conversion of so many souls to the Lord and in the preparation of them receiving Jesus Christ. And what is the primary message that he gave? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. The way you prepare for the Lord is to turn to make a change in your life. To turn to God means you got to turn away from something else. You turn to God and away from selfishness. You turn to God and away from the love of money. You turn to God and away from bitterness or lust or envy or the approval of your peers. You turn to God and away from your pride. This is how you come to God. And the question always remains, what is it this morning that you have to turn away from so that you can come back to God, brothers and sisters? John's going to be very effective in his ministry that people will literally rejoice that he had been born. They're going to praise God. After his ministry is over, I'm so happy this man was born. I'm so happy that God sent him to awaken me to my need spiritually of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Do you want to know the fruit of real spirit-empowered ministry? It's when you see people coming to repentance and broken over their own sin and turning to him for grace and mercy and love and restoration. That's how you know that's a Holy Spirit-saturated ministry so that God might bring a people of his very own to himself. And the way that God accomplishes, begins to accomplish all of this, is by beginning with a faithful old couple on the hillside 
and telling them and giving to them exactly what he's about to do. Now, I want to close with just a little bit of application here on greatness. John the Baptist wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. He lived in the boonies. So what people normally view as great. People either hated him or they listened to him. They repented or they wanted him dead. And John would end up in jail before he would be beheaded in a violent execution when he was about 30 years old. And I looked too great in the eyes of the world. Then you have Herod in the beginning of our text, king of Judea, governmental power at his fingertips. His nickname is Herod the Great, ironically. And yet when all is said and done, there's this great reversal that so many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. And on that last day, we will really understand what it means to be great before the Lord. Jesus says to John the Baptist, among those born of women, there have been none greater. Those who live for the Lord are great, brothers and sisters, even if they are called weirdos here. And those who live for something else, anything else, are not, even if they're decorated with crowns and seated on thrones. Do you believe this? Do we really believe this? Is God's approval more important to us than the approval of anyone or anything else? This separates true religion from that which is empty and hollow, a faith that loves God for God and lives unto him, and not just what God can hook me up with. Be faithful to the mission at hand, whether you preach, evangelize, pray, give, all of the above. I'm looking at little kids here in the room. Greatness, boys and girls, is living unto God. And you know, one thing I know as a parent is I, the, the most accurate window into my heart, it never lies, is what do I want for my kids? That's how I know what I worship. I'm outside playing basketball with them, working at a jumper, point your elbow. What do I want for my kids? Well, obviously athletics. That's what I worship. Study hard. Do good on math. You got to do this. What do I worship? We, I took our kids, they were born January, February, March, April, to the doctor's appointment, and I'm watching that growth chart nervously. How tall are you going to be? What position can you play? What am I worshiping? How tall is John the Baptist? Irrelevant. These things are irrelevant, brothers and sisters. The parents in this room, uh, uh, parents of grandparents, what you want for your grandkids, your kids, what you want for the rest of your life determines what it is you worship. What you think is great in your eyes determines who it is that you love. Let us be great, brothers and sisters, in the eyes of our God and of no one else. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And, and we thank you, God, that, that your decree, your plan of salvation, your, your redemption does not rest upon us at all when you are sovereignly bringing your plan to completion as you see fit. Thank you, God, for raising up people at the right times. Thank you for being a God who makes promises and will actually deliver on them. Give us, God, faith in you, belief in you, that even if 400 years go by before these promises come to fruition, that even if the world's spinning and twirling around us, that we might trust in you and live unto you. Father, we ask that you'd make us uh, a great church in this sense, 
that many people might come to know you through the testimony of those in this room, that people that you are gathering to yourself might look back one day and be thankful that you had put this church here so that people might come to know Jesus Christ and know you forever and joyfully into eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen.